0: The world has changed. I feel it in the water. I feel it in the earth. I smell it in the air. Much that once was is lost. For none now live who remember it. Does anybody know what that's from? Lord of the Rings. We got one. Awesome. All right, here's another one. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom. It was the age of foolishness. I know that one? Tell so two cities. Alright, last one. Everybody better get this one. A long time ago, in a galaxy, far, far away. We got that Star Wars. No. Oh, I love that. Nice. I don't even like Star Wars, so I think it was a good joke. Alright, I couldn't get into it. But anyways, those are a few of many like epic opening lines to either like a movie or a book. Right? And any good story or any good book or a speech will seek to draw you in immediately and capture your attention from the very first lines, right? Um, If you do any studying on, like, speaking, you'll you'll somehow inevitably end up, like, at a TED Talk. Because, you know, they're like, that's like the epitome, like this 20-minute talk, right? A TED Talk. And the speaker seeks to, like, hook the audience in 30 seconds or less. I don't know what the stats are. You have, like, so much time to draw them in. And so they start with something epic. And I think we miss it in our context, but the author of the book of Hebrews does a masterful job in the opening lines of his sermon, which is what I believe this is, and we'll look at that in just a moment. He says, long ago, God spoke to our ancestors by the prophets at different times and in different ways. In these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. And I would place these opening lines up there with the others I read earlier. As, as the, the speaker begins this eloquent book by drawing us in, and he immediately gets to the heart of his message while rooting it in their ancient history, and it's beautiful. And as we go through the book, we're going to get to see a lot of eloquence come through. It's a very well-written book. But as beautiful and eloquent as these words are, what they are seeking to point us to is even more magnificent. And so my prayer for us as we begin this series is that we will be captured by much more than eloquent words on a page. I want us to be captured by the final and living word, the Son of God, Jesus the Messiah, because that is who the book of Hebrews is all about. So good morning again, church, as always. um, It's a joy to be gathered with you. As I said earlier, my name is Joel, um, and I get to serve as one of the pastors uh, here. But more importantly than that, I get to just be a member here at New Eden and get to be a part of what God is doing in our midst um, as we join God in his mission of redeeming the world through seemingly ordinary local churches gathered all around the world um, that have been for the last 2,000 years. And so I'm grateful to be a part. So like I said, we are beginning this new series in the book of Hebrews. Um, This book is rich. It is saturated with the explicit gospel message of Jesus' work, both in the world around us and in our hearts and in our lives. And if you've been with New Eden for any length of time, you know that we believe every book of the scripture ultimately points us to Jesus. But sometimes that path to seeing Jesus can feel like mining the depths of the ocean to find a lost treasure, right? And there's something glorious about that. Some, like, it's a beautiful journey to go on. And we see that through different books, like maybe Jonah or Daniel, some of the books we've been through. But then you have books like Hebrews, and it is impossible to miss. It's like it just reaches up and slaps you in the face, clearly stating what is true. And Hebrews is actually a great way for us to even understand how do we interpret the Old Testament because Hebrews draws on so much Old Testament scripture. And so I am excited for us to enter this journey together Um, as we work through the text, both now and in future weeks, we'll be using the CSB version of the scriptures. You're welcome to bring whatever you're most comfortable with. Did you read the CSB, Kelly, or did I miss something? Okay. Okay. I felt like something was off on that, but maybe I missed it, so (laughs) I was looking at the screen, or maybe we put the ESV in the screen. I don't know. Something was different, but anyways. um, So you are welcome to bring, though, whatever. Um, As Sarah Beth mentioned earlier, we do have the CSB Scripture Notebooks uh, for purchase on the welcome table, Um, and that's what this is, so you can see them. They can just be a helpful tool for you. Um, Again, if money's an issue, just take one, Um, and we'll always have the verses on the screens behind me. So... Today we're covering what is the intro to the book, and that is verses 1 through 3 of chapter 1. Before we start unpacking those few verses, I do want to take a few minutes. We do this every time we go into a book, and we just say, hey, what's the context? What is going on in this book so we can all be on the same page? So a little bit about Hebrews. Hebrews. Anytime you study a book of the Bible, one of the first questions you need to ask is what kind of literature is it? You don't interpret poetry the same way you might interpret apocalyptic literature or a historical narrative. And so we have to ask what kind of literature is Hebrews? So I think the best lens to read Hebrews through is as a sermon, Okay, Commentators are in agreement that this book would have been passed around as other epistles and letters were in the early church. But most commentators also believe that Hebrews was primarily written first and foremost as a sermon, as a homily, something like that. And many of the churches would have orators who were gifted that would come up and they would read the letter as a sermon. If you um, look at it, you kind of see that. There's no pleasantries. There's no self-introduction. He just goes right into introing what he's going to talk about. Um, He's setting the stage for what he's going to communicate through the rest of the message. And so some people say the intro is 1 through 4. The CSB has it divided that way. Some say it's 1 through 3. We're kind of taking it 1 through 3. But that's the intro to this sermon. If it were to be read by one of these orators, it would take about 45 to 50 minutes, which is, so if we read through the whole thing we joked about, that's what we were just going to do this week, is just read through the whole thing. Um, We're not, but um, about 45 to 50 minute sermon. So that makes sense. So, what type of literature it is? We generally a sermon. You can also look at it as a letter. Um, But the next question we typically ask is, "Well, who wrote it?" Right? That's important for us to know. Who's the author of this sermon? And the reality is, we have no idea. Like, there are not many books of the Bible where there's like not strong opinions about who wrote it. But this is like one of them. Every there's no commentator who's like, "I got it figured out," and that tells you that we don't know. Early on, there were some traditions that said it was Paul. At this point, I had a hard time finding, I think I found one or two people in biblical scholarship that still think that Paul wrote this, so most people don't think it was Paul. Um, Best guesses range anywhere from the biblical characters of Apollos um, to Luke to Barnabas, everywhere in between. We really don't know. And so what I think that tells us is it's not that important. Um, the third century scholar, Origen, I think he said it best. He said, as to who wrote the epistle, referencing Hebrews, he says, only God knows the truth, okay? And, and it doesn't really matter. The focal point is not on the character who wrote it, but the character of the one he writes about. So even though we don't know who wrote it, there are a few helpful things to note about who it was written to. So we don't get the audience, uh, the intended audience explicitly stated in the book, but we get clues all throughout that tell us a general idea. And so the main thing that we need to understand for context is that the intended audience would have been people who were very familiar with and at one time deeply embedded within Judaism. They understood very well the the author assumes that these people understand the old covenant sacrificial system that they have a deep knowledge of all these things. And so that tells us the predominant makeup of the receiving audience were Jewish converts who had been converted to Christianity. I mean, it could have included some Gentiles who um, had been converted to Judaism previously and then converted to Christianity, but there is an assumption that they understand the Old Covenant system, and we'll be looking back at that quite a bit throughout the book, okay? And then we got to look at why it was written. We can see as we go through it, we'll see that the purpose of this book was to encourage and cultivate faith among these people who were facing forms of persecution. Now, clearly, because he says it explicitly, this persecution had not yet elevated to the point of death, but most likely it was still very real. It included things like economic loss, being cut off from the community, being ostracized from family, being mocked, and other forms of just cultural pressures from all sides. I think it's important for us to understand that conversion to Christianity during this culture was not just trading one religion for another. See, when Jesus came on the scene, his claims were so radical that it basically angered everybody, okay? Um, If you then began to follow this Jesus, you were placed in the crosshairs of both the ruling empire and the ruling religious elite, The claim that Jesus alone was king angered the civil leaders of the day. And the claim that Jesus alone was savior and not the law, not rules, not regulations, that angered the religious leaders of the day. Specifically, we need to understand that some of the leaders of Judaism held political power and sway and they would use it to persecute the early church. We even see that with the apostle Paul before he was converted, okay? And so that's some of what's going on. And so our preacher is writing this message to the worn out, beat up people of God who are saying, is following Jesus really worth it? Like we hear these big, magnificent things about Jesus having all things underneath his feet, but it doesn't really look like it. That's not the reality staring me in the face. And so the writer of Hebrews wants to give this heavenly glimpse of what's going on. Scattered throughout the book are various warnings against apostasy and walking away from the faith. And those contain some of the more difficult passages that we will walk through. But it's interesting that the main tact taken is not to call the listeners of this message to just hang in there. and don't say, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, just get it figured out. Rather, the resounding and repeating message that we see is that Jesus is Better. So if the purpose is to encourage these weary saints, then the method used by this author is to proclaim the glories of Jesus and set a feast for them to come sit at. Jesus has finally and completely done the work that was needed for salvation, and he is trustworthy. You can rest in him and throw your life on his care. And so simply put, the main theme of this book is that Jesus is, is better. He is greater than fill in the blank. He is superior, OK? That's what our graphic means. That's the greater than sign. You like that? It's cute. All right, I even put it on a mug. Go to merch under the app if you want one. Oh, somebody said, oh, look at that. Now I'm going to drink out of it. There's my commercial. But it, it's beautiful, right, over and over and over. Like it is just this flood where we see the magnificent glory and beauty of Jesus. And the purpose of this is so that whatever hardships the world may afford, whatever persecutions might lay in store, whatever temptations crouch at our door, Jesus is bigger and better and truer than anything else that this world or any religion has to offer. Through the book, we'll see that Jesus is better than the angels, we'll see that he is the true human, the true Adam. He's better than the prophet Moses. He's the place of true and final rest. He is the fulfillment of the promised land. He is the true high priest. He's the mediator of a new and better covenant. And he's the final sacrifice for sin. And we'll see so much more. And so all of this would have encouraged them, but it also holds incredible relevance for you and for me. As we get tired on our journey of following Jesus, as we get weary and worn out and we face pressures of the day. The promise of the perseverance of the saints is rooted in the finished work of Christ on our behalf. We live in a world with pressures from both a religious legalistic culture and also a licentious God-denying culture. And so we're at these crosshairs and the message of Hebrews is that in the midst of all of this, the better way is Jesus. Everything begins and ends with him, and there is nothing worth more in all the earth. And so that's a little bit of context for the book of Hebrews. So, what we're going to do for the rest of our time is look at these first three verses of Hebrews chapter 1. Again, they stand as the introduction to the text, and so they're going to contain some high level thoughts and ideas and concepts that he will unpack throughout the rest of the book. And so we're gonna kind of stay up high level with him. Basically, I wanna give you just what the text is, which is a flood of magnificent truth about Jesus. And as we work through the book, we'll begin to mind the depths of what these truths mean in our lives and in the world around us. So since it's so good, I wanna read it one more time for us. Long ago, God spoke to our ancestors by the prophets, at different times and in different ways. In these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. God has appointed him heir of all things and made the universe through him. The son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact expression of his nature, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So we're gonna break this passage down into three different points. The first of which is this, the word of the son. The word of the son. Hebrews doesn't mention that the son is Jesus. He will in chapter two, but it's assumed. And we just came through the Advent season where we spent time dwelling on the longing for the promised one who would come, right? We, we sat and we waited in that. Through the prophets, the people of God had heard glimpses of a Messiah, of a son of God who would come. They had even seen revelations in times past. they had even heard the audible voice of God. They had experienced deliverance, but all of that was only a shadow. It was a glimpse, a foretaste that was pointing forward to the real thing, which was when God himself would come in flesh in the person of Jesus Christ. And the word of this son is is far and above better than any word of the prophets from the past. Because it is the eternal word, the logos, the now, the word now made flesh, John 1. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. And then later in the, in the book, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. This eternal word that had existed with the father became flesh When the preacher of Hebrews says, in these last days, he's simply referencing the advent of Christ. Paul says it this way in Galatians chapter 4. He says, when the time came to completion, God sent his son. The word of the son is here, explicitly clear. It has arrived and it's good news. So, the word of the Son is not only better than the prophets, we also see that it is final. This is it. We're not looking for more revelation in the sense that there's something better. The greatest revelation is here Jesus is it. We don't need to look any further. As the apostle Peter says, he says, these are things that angels long to look into and inquired about. It says, what is this plan of salvation? And in Christ, it was all revealed. First Peter 1 20, he, Jesus was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for you. This is the word of God to humanity. Not only is the word of the Son better than the prophets, not only is it final, we also see that it is the word of this Son that created all things. At the end of verse 2, our preacher says that God made the universe through the Son, through Him, through Jesus. So our preacher kind of starts with these last days, the advent of Christ, the birth of Christ and his his work there. And then he kind of zooms backward to the time of creation and shows us that the son had always existed with the father. Jesus was the speaking word at creation that got this whole thing started. John 1, 3, all things were created through him and apart from him, not one thing was created that has been created. Colossians 1, for everything was created by him in heaven and on earth, visible, invisible, thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities, you name it, all things have been created through him and for him. The word of this son is powerful and has created all things. But not only that, the word of this son sustains what he created, he is not absent. Verse three, we're told that the son is sustaining all things by his powerful word. Now, I'm not sure how you're wired. I'm the type that loves to get things going, but I don't like to always follow through, okay? I'm a creator, you give me an idea, like you get me excited about something, like let's go. Like I'll create a graphic for it, I'll create a spreadsheet, but I don't want to maintain that spreadsheet. Like let somebody else fill in the data later, you know, throughout the next couple years, right? But that's not Jesus. Like he doesn't just get started and then back away and say, good luck humans. That's not what he does. He's intimately involved and he's sustaining all things by his powerful word. And so right away in Hebrews, our author gives us this, like, like we could preach a whole sermon on each of these things, tells us of the all-powerful word of this son. But as we keep reading, we see not only the word of the son, we also see the worth of the son. We're told at the end of verse 2 that God has appointed Jesus heir of all things. We don't, in our culture, understand this idea of inheritance that well, But the idea here is that the father entrusts to the son the very things he created, which is all things. This begins to tell us that the worth of this son, his value is all encompassing. The one who was the rightful heir was the firstborn son and he was given the father's inheritance. But this is no like normal inheritance. This isn't a few thousand dollars. It's not a car or a house. It is all things like the entire cosmos and this son is worth it all this book will pull on a ton of old testament passages and psalm 2 is one of those and this is what it says I will declare the Lord's decree. He said to me, and this is ultimately fulfilled in Jesus, you are my son. Today, I have become your father. We're gonna see that quoted directly in Hebrews next week. And then it goes on, it says, ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance and the ends of the earth your possession. All the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. It's why part of our vision is to see the entire earth flooded with the glory of God. He's worth it all. It's his inheritance and he will have it. So not only is the worth of the son all encompassing, the worth of this son is gloriously divine. When we read verse three of our text, we see that the son is the radiance. This is strong language. The radiance of God's glory and the exact Not close, but the exact expression of his nature. The worth of the son radiates God's glory and displays God's character because the son is one with the father and the spirit, each distinct, but making up together the triune God who rules over all. And if you want to see the glory of God on full display, you want to see it radiating to the world, look at the face of Jesus. Colossians says it this way, that Jesus bears God's image and that in Christ, the entire fullness of God was pleased to dwell. The worth of this son reveals who God is. This word expression that we see in the text, it literally means character. And not like we think it does kind of lead to the idea of character that we think of, but it's this idea of a wax seal that has been imprinted or stamped with the image of a ring. And Jesus is a perfect representation and exact depiction of who God is. If you want to know who God is, look to the Son. That's biblical. He is marvelously glory and worthy of all praise. You could add up all the wealth of princes and thieves. You could gather together all the holdings of the biggest investors in the world. You could cash out every bank account from the largest to the least. You could assemble in one place the greatest armies that the earth has ever known. You could scour the globe, finding the most rare treasures known to man. And you have not even begun to scratch the surface of the worth of this son. He is so far and above and greater than anything that our minds could even begin to comprehend. Sometimes I'll sit around and I'll just think like, how much money is a billion dollars. I don't know if you've ever tried to like comprehend, like it's a lot more money than you probably think it is. One of the things I'll do to comprehend it is I'll break it down, like how much wealth you know. I'll break it down into the hour. So last night I did the math. If someone gave you thousand dollars an hour, so think about how much money you make an hour right now. Okay, not a thousand. I hope not. If not, we need to talk because <laughs> New Eden has some needs. We can talk about. Uh, But if someone gave you $1,000 an hour, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, so 365 days out of the year, $1,000 an hour, for 100 years, you still would not be at a billion dollars. You'd be about $124 million short. Like, that's a lot of money. I'm like, how do you even spend that much money, right? But I'm not going to get into politics. Anyways, when I really try to like understand how much money that is, my brain begins to break. Like it's the same way if you've ever like had someone explain how far apart like the planets are and the stars and they start with like, if it was a piece of paper from here to the sun and then you add, you're just like, I don't like. And that's nothing when compared to the worth of the sun. His glory radiates and there is no one who could stand in his presence. Like in fact, as I was like pondering on the all-powerful word of the Son and meditating on the all-encompassing worth of the Son, I actually begin to wonder how the writer of Hebrews is taking us to good news. Because like the idea of Jesus might be like awe-inspiring when we think about his word and his worth. But in light of who we are, it's actually freaking terrifying. When we understand, like under the old covenant, like it was just symbols and types, these, these temples and tabernacles that represented God's presence. It wasn't like it represented it. It was a shadow and a type. Even then, you couldn't go into the most holy place It was one high priest who had to go through all these rituals to go just once a year to offer sacrifice for the people. The presence of God was unapproachable due to the sin of man. Big, huge picture. This image we get right in our opening lines, but I love that the writer can't go long without giving us incredible hope. We saw the word of the Son the worth of the son, and then lastly, we see the work of the son. What did he come to do? At the end of verse three of Hebrews chapter one, we read that after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. It is good news that the son displays to us the worth of God, but he did not come just for that because there's still, still a disconnect if we're sinners. He came to do a work that could actually usher us into the very presence of God through the purification of sin. We're told right up front, and the book is just going to like flood us with it and unpack it even more, but The point here is that Jesus came to do a new creation work in the hearts of sinners and to bring salvation. And this work is specifically accomplishing what the law never could. This was impossible under the old covenant. Under the old covenant, sins could be temporarily covered. They could be momentarily dealt with, but they could not be Forgiven once and for all, removed as far as the east is from the west. But that is the work that Jesus came to accomplish with his life, death, burial, and resurrection. This is the purification for sins. And Hebrews will unfold this even more, but the purifying work of the Son came at great cost to himself. Jesus willingly became man, as we'll see next week, lower than the angels, humbled himself and took on flesh. Remember, one with the Father, the radiance of God's glory, coming as a baby, leaving a throne of glory and perfection and trading his royal crown for a life of poverty, homelessness, ridicule, and grief, But with his perfect life, he becomes the complete sacrifice, the perfect sacrifice as he completely obeys and surrenders to his father. He is becoming the perfect spotless lamb of God who is here to take away the sins of the world. And that's where the life of Jesus was directly headed the entire time, to death, to sacrifice, to die and atone for the sins of the world. He was not willing that any should perish. And so he set his face like a flint and took on the fruit of our sin. And he, he takes on himself what we, the sinners, the ones who can't even come to the presence of God because of our brokenness, he takes that on himself as he faces the violent urges of a broken humanity. As we'll see later in Hebrews, he suffers outside the gate so that he might sanctify his people, that's you if you're in Christ, through his own blood. And it is the precious shed blood of Christ that purifies sinners and makes us saints. If you are in Christ, you are a saint. You are a new creation. It is who you are through the blood of Christ. It is not like any of the blood under the old covenant. It is once and for all the final sacrifice because this work is final. It's enough. You might think it's not. You might look at your own sin and your brokenness and think there is no way, but it is enough. And this work is final. That's why on the cross, he cries out, it is finished. There is now no need for the continued offering of sacrifices and rituals and just begging God to forgive us. Please just, just let me, you know, go and, and don't, don't hurt me. That's not it. We come boldly to the throne of grace is what Hebrews tells us. In the cross, God's people receive all the forgiveness they'll ever need. And we don't like it because it's scandalous. We want to hold sins over other people's heads because we know we do the same thing to ourselves. But in the cross, we get it all, all the forgiveness we need. There are no more sacrifices to be offered because the once for all final sacrifice of the Son is complete. Probably one of my favorite images from Hebrews, at least at this point, as we study it, there'll probably be more, but it's this idea of the son sitting down at the right hand of the majesty on high. I mean, yes, sitting by the father alludes to his kingship and his place is the rightful heir. That's a piece of it. But it also shows that the work is Complete. In the Old Covenant, there was no chair in the tabernacle because the work of the high priest was never done. Sin was never finally done away with, but now in Christ, all sin is wiped away and the table is set to offer salvation for any who would come because he beat sin. He deals with it. He takes on death and he lays in the tomb, but on Easter morning, he gets back up out of the grave, stomps on the head of the serpent and says, I've done it. The work is complete. And this blood pleads a better word over us. The word of this son does for us what it did in the original creation when he creates all things and he sustains it. But this time, like this big, huge cosmos, it is you as the new creation that God has created as he rips out your old heart and he gives you a new heart that actually loves him and longs for him. And he not only, Jesus doesn't, this is how we treat salvation. Like Jesus got it started and then he backs up and says, all right, don't screw it up again. That's not it. Jesus is there intimately involved, working, even like, Sometimes I'm like, do I even want you, God? Like, do I even desire you? And it's like, Jesus is still working and sanctifying me. He is not backed off. He is not uninvolved. And so for those of us in here who don't yet know Jesus, maybe we have an idea because we do live in a religious culture. We have an idea, but we don't yet know him. The invitation of Hebrews is to look to him and live. And what I encourage you and plead with you, I don't know what it is that's a hurdle for you giving your life to Christ. I don't know what that is. I don't know if it's cultural pressures. I don't know if it's different beliefs of Christianity. I don't know if it's baggage or trauma from the past. Those are all real things and we wanna talk about those and wrestle through those. But I, I, I will say this, everything else in this world will let you down. But when we see the worth of Christ and we see the work he's done, everything else just begins to fade into the background. So the call, if you don't know Christ, is to repent and believe the good news of Jesus, his life, death, burial, and resurrection. And for those who are the saints of God, who... Like, we may struggle with doubts. We may struggle when we look at our lives to really believe that he is as good as the writer of Hebrews says he is. But I want to tell you, be encouraged. It is not about you just hanging on and being faithful enough. Be encouraged. Your sin has been dealt with. Yes, confess. Agree with God. We do confession of sin. That's simply agreeing with God when we are made aware of our sin and we're like, "Dang, there it is." I agree with you, God. That's not good. That is taking my eyes off of you. But you don't have to grovel and beg and self-flagellate like begging God, please let me back in your good graces. As if you could ever earn that, anyways. Do you think you could earn like like getting into the blazing, radiant presence of God? No come on grace alone and that's what Hebrews says you can approach the throne boldly anytime you need it you don't have a high priest who doesn't understand what it's like to be tempted he knows he gets it so don't run back to the old way don't turn back to the law it has zero value in making you right with god it served its purpose when it pointed you to christ So now we live under the law of love, the law of liberty, as Paul calls it, or James, I don't know which one, the law of love, not of works. The only work that matters is the work of the true and better one, Jesus. And so may our lives be filled with retelling this good news to each other. Because we forget day in, day out, I forget. Like, I don't know if Jesus is really better than this material thing or whatever, winning a stupid youth basketball game, is Jesus really better than that? Maybe not, I don't know. Y'all can judge me. The point is we forget and we need each other to remind us that Jesus is better. He is better than your worst days and he's better than your best. He's better than your poverty and he's better than your wealth. He's better than your suffering, and he's better than your happiness. He's better than your failures and better than your successes. So look to him, his supreme beauty and sacrifice, and all who look to him will never be ashamed. All in all, Jesus is better.